All right, we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 4 tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4, we're continuing a series titled Fighting the Good Fight, it comes out of 2 Timothy chapter 4 when Paul's race or life was coming to its end, and he writes to Pastor Timothy here in 2 Timothy, he says in verse 7, I have fought a good fight, and that is the basis for the series that we've been studying and concerning this, uh, this, this fight that we're facing, if you're a born-again believer tonight, you are in the midst of a battle. Whether you understand it or not, there is a battle, and it's not a battle of the flesh. It's a battle of the spirit. It's a spiritual battle because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but there's a great spiritual battle going on all around us. And the devil and his demonic horde is constantly on the attack, especially for a born-again Christian and uh, you have, if you've got uh, Christ in your heart, you have a big giant target on your back. And the devil is coming for you, and he does not want you to do anything for God. You keep your mouth shut, stay in your seat, you stay on the bench, on the sidelines of this game, and don't run your race, and the devil is pleased with that, because less souls will see the kingdom of God as a result of it. Because Jesus said we are the light of the world, and we are the salt of the world. And therefore, we must shine bright and stay savory. And the only way to do that is to get victory in these spiritual battles that we're facing. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and stand to our feet tonight. And we're going to read our passages again that we had read uh, last week. And I like to do that on Sundays, just like to stand for the reading of God's Word. And so we're going to start in verse 6. And uh, we'll go down to verse 8 here. So not, not too much reading. Verse 6. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul uh, had been given some understanding that his time was coming to its end. I believe God helped him to know that. He says in verse 7, and it seems confidently he says it, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Father, we're thankful for the reading of your word tonight, and want to ask you to help us with this message, and may the Holy Spirit be our preacher tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you are looking forward to the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. You notice how in verse 8 there, he says, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So he's talking to all of us tonight. That tells us a couple things. It tells us, for one, we're all fighting a fight. We're all, we all have some type of course, and we're all responsible for keeping the faith. But what is the faith? Now, we have faith, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. But what is, what is the faith? The faith is referring to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the faith, and people need to know that. How do they know it? They know it through our lives. They know it through our representation of Jesus Christ in the world. When it comes to the fight that Paul mentions here, 
Uh, as I mentioned last week, there's really three key areas where we are fighting this good fight. There's the inward fight. We talked about that last week, where first off, you need to know tonight whether or not you are saved. Are you saved? And what are you saved by? If it's not by grace, then you don't have salvation. You don't have the real stuff. But salvation is by grace through faith. You got to know you're saved. Now you're entered into the fight. You're on the track. You're running the race. You are now contending for the Lord. Then after that, number two, to fight this inward fight, you have to be in submission to God. If you've never submitted yourself to the Lord and made him Lord over your life, you've probably been struggling every single day of your Christian life. And the reason is it's not any kind of magic formula. It's as simple as this. You have not yet submitted yourself to your almighty creator. In the book of James, we're told to resist the devil. But how do we resist the devil? In the passage there, in chapter 4, I believe it is, it says, submit to God, submit to God, period. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But the first thing you have to do is learn to submit to God. And you're probably losing your battle today if you haven't learned how to submit to God. And then the third thing we talked about was sanctifying the Lord in our hearts. Sanctifying the Lord in our hearts, recognizing that God is not like your best friend here on earth. God is not like your brother or sister here on earth. God is not like your mom or dad here on earth. Now, there are similarities, but God is far greater than any of them. We must sanctify him aside in our hearts and recognize that God is absolutely holy and he is our creator. He's not our buddy He's not, he's not just equal with me on the same playing field. No, he transcends. He is greater. He needs to be reverenced and recognized in such a way. And when you sanctify the Lord in your heart, suddenly what God says in his word will mean more to you. And when you read the Bible, it won't be just another book that you could, you could take it or leave it, but it'll actually be the words of God affecting you in your heart, in your spirit, and in your life. Three things you got to get straight concerning the inward fight. Salvation, submission, and sanctification. Now tonight, if I've never made you mad in this church, I'll probably make you mad tonight. Just going to warn you, okay? Because the next one we're going to talk about is the outward fight, okay? The outward fight. We move to the next part of this great spiritual battle as we move to the outward fight. And you know, as I said, the inward fight begins the race, but the outward fight is the race, each child of God stands accountable to God for all that he or she does in their life. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, But I say unto you that every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. The word idle means a lazy word, an unthoughtful word, one that you didn't really sit down and, and, and strategically plan what you were going to say. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you were going to go in maybe for a job interview and you thought about how am I going to, how am I going to speak in this job interview and maybe you got your words in, in, in a certain order where you wanted to please that employer so he would give you that job? The idle word is not that kind of word. It's the word that you didn't even think about that you said. Jesus says you'll stand in account of that word. Aren't you thankful for Jesus' shed blood tonight? 
Because I'll be honest with you, I don't remember all the words I've said in my life in 41 years. The lost stand in judgment before the great white throne, but the saved, they kneel in judgment before the judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. So the Bible clearly teaches us, warns us, if you want to say it like that, tells us that we're all accountable to God as individuals. And just because my peers are doing something, that is irrelevant when it comes to my accountability because I am accountable to God Almighty, me accountable to Him as my Creator. And though my, my wife uh, is in my life and we are married and we spend countless hours together, I am accountable directly to God and it doesn't matter what my wife does when it comes to my accountability, if that makes sense. Same goes for my children. But then, then on, uh, in their case, the same is true for them. They're accountable to God. We all are. So that means that what I'm going to preach to you tonight actually carries with it an eternal weight. God wants his children to live according to his word. That means we need to read it, we need to believe it, we need to live it, and then we need to repeat it. And that's how simple the Christian life is. Take the word of God, read it, believe it, live it, and then just repeat it. And that's how you can honor God and understand that your accountability is um, something that is very paramount to him. Now, concerning our outward fight, there are four areas of our lives that we're going to address tonight. This doesn't cover everything. Somebody might could come up with some other ones, but I just thought these sort of were general areas that I believe would cover the majority of our outward fight. And I'm going to give them to you real quick to start with. It's appearance, amusement, actions, and attitude. Those four areas, those are the outward fight of man. Appearance, amusement, actions, and attitude. And it's concerning because it's how we interact with the world around us. And again, we stand accountable to God. So first off, we're going to talk about the appearance of the believer. And like I said, if I haven't made you mad yet, um, I probably will say something tonight that will offend you, but that's okay. Just note that I'm going to try to be very biblical about what I say, and I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm just going to give you the Bible, and then you're going to have to go home and take it up with the Lord tonight, okay? So when it comes to the appearance of the believer, a couple questions that might come to mind. What should a believer look like? What should a believer look like? On the outside, we're not talking about the inward. We're talking about the outward. Does it matter? Another question is, does it matter what we look like? Does it matter how a person dresses? Does it matter how they, uh, how they represent themselves in the world? Does it matter at all? And see, many people have gone back and forth with these ideas. In the past, some have majored on the believer's appearance to the point of becoming pharisaical and judgmental. Let's not go down that path tonight, okay? And then there are those who have decided it doesn't matter at all. Appearance is a personal preference, and God doesn't care about these these insignificant areas of our lives, as long as our heart is right with Him. Let's not go down that path either, okay? Because neither one of them lead to a biblical place. Let's be biblical about our appearance, that, that, and, and that's really the best chance for us to actually honor God 
and avoid living in sin, even if it is ignorantly. And that just means without knowing, okay? Under the appearance of the believer, this is a couple of sub points for you if you're taking notes tonight. First off, do you believe that God has a different standard than us? How many would say tonight God has a different standard than we do? Some do, some don't. Okay, so some, some don't believe God has a different standard. All right. Well, I will tell you this from the Bible. God definitely has a different standard than the world does. It is without a doubt. And I'm going to take you to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to show you when this whole thing began, this fall of man, and how how drastically different the standard of God is from mankind's standard. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 with me. This is where it all began. <clears throat> At the beginning of chapter 3, we were still living in a perfect utopia. Man had not yet fallen into sin. And just a few verses into that chapter... Man rebels against God and falls into sin. One of the first things that take place is in verse 7, if you'll look there with me in chapter 3. It says, The eyes of them both, this is Adam and Eve, were opened. And they knew, they had knowledge, they knew something, that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Prior to verse 7, Whatever was in the garden, whatever the form was, however they uh, lived, uh, we understand that they did not have knowledge about nakedness. They did not see one another as being naked because they lacked the knowledge of evil. And with evil, there's lust. And because of nakedness, lust is stimulated. So prior to them falling, they were in fact naked, but they had no clue. As soon as they're aware of their nakedness, what do they do? The Bible says they sew together fig leaves and they make themselves aprons. Now, here's the thing about a fig leaf. Fig leaves can be rather large. They can be anywhere from 8 to 15 inches long, at least modern-day fig leaves. So they can be larger than your hand. And if you took enough together, you could probably create a decent covering. So the problem is not the fig leaves. The problem is the word aprons. You see where it says that there in verse 7? They made themselves aprons. The word aprons is defined as a belt. It's basically referring to a loincloth, if you know what that is. Not to be crude, and I'll try to use um, language that maybe will not stimulate any or, or cause anybody to think anything strange, but basically they were covering their private areas, and that was it, and it's questionable whether or not Eve was even covering her top. This was an immediate knee-jerk reaction to the fact that they saw nakedness. Let's sow fig leaves, let's cover up these parts. That's sufficient. That's man's standard. Then you work your way through the Bible. God calls out to Adam. Adam's hiding because of his nakedness. It says in verse 8, They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? He said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So in the presence of God, something was different. Now watch this. I want you to think about this, okay? Adam and Eve, when God's presence was not felt there, they sowed fig leaves to cover themselves. 
But suddenly when God showed up, Adam's saying here, he said, I've hid myself because I was naked. He still felt naked in the presence of God. Here's here's something that um, maybe we could relate with. If someone goes to the beach, especially today, uh, people wear certain garments that are basically underwear-like. We went to the beach here recently, and there was a boy out there in a Speedo. It was underwear. That's all it was. It was his tidy whities and he felt good about being out there in his tidy whities but they were, they were a US, United States American flag color, I think. So he's out there in his underwear, and he felt okay about it. But I guarantee you, if we were to take that young man and say, hey, come to church with us on Sunday, and just wear that Speedo, I guarantee you he would not walk in this church in that Speedo, would he? Something triggers, I'm in the presence of God. Even if he doesn't even believe in God, he knows naturally that what he's portraying in that place of worship is wrong. Hey, that's what happened to Adam and Eve. They started with a standard. Let's sew together an apron. Let's cover just the private area, leave everything else exposed. Oh, no, here's God. I hear his voice coming. And they hid down behind the bush. God, I was hiding because I was naked. Isn't that what it says in the Bible? But yet they had covered themselves. They still felt nakedness. We move on. God puts judgment out on the world. He curses the world with the um, curse of death, and that's why things die, and that's why things get sick now, and that's why people hurt and feel pain. It's because we live in a fallen world. But then God wants to restore his relationship with Adam and Eve. And in order to do that, if you'll look with me at verse 22... It says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden to till the ground from whence he was taken, and he drove him out of the garden. Prior to him driving Adam out of the garden, in verse 21, it says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and he clothed them. You see how different the language is? Now, man had a standard. And this is in one chapter of the Bible, and not even that many verses apart. Man's standard was, I'll take fig leaves off the tree. I'm going to cover just my private area. When God shows up, I'll hide my nakedness because I feel guilty about it, but as long as God's not around, I'll expose myself. God says, if you want to be right with me, I'm going to take and I'm going to have to sacrifice this animal, an innocent animal, had to die because of the sins of Adam and Eve. And then God took the the skin off of that animal and made, not aprons, but what does it say? He made coats of skins. That is one Hebrew word, and the best way to define it would be a tunic. And if you know what a tunic is, it it sits right here around the neck like a a T-shirt would, I guess. You know, cuts right here around the neck. Usually they're cut off with, and they don't have sleeves, but they can't have sleeves. But it hangs straight down, all the way down to the knee. It covers from the knee to the neck. And that's what God made in order for Adam and Eve to continue in fellowship with Him. That tells me in one chapter of our Bible, in the very beginning of the Bible, that God has a standard that is drastically different than the world's standard. And all of us have to make a decision at some point in our life 
concerning who it is that we are worshiping and who it is that we are following, because all of us are following somebody. I told you I might make you mad tonight with some of this stuff. I don't know if I am yet. Hopefully you're not too hot under the collar just yet, because we got, we got a little bit more to look at, okay? So when it comes to this idea, in, the, in this, just this first part about this standard, okay, the coats of skin, it's a tunic, it's covering the body from the neck down to the knees, uh, sometimes with sleeves, sometimes without sleeves. But here's the, here's the gist of all this. God showed us in the garden of sin that his standard for his children is without a doubt different than the world's. Now, you know what I'm not doing? I'm not trying to give any rules to a lost person tonight. And I believe that's where Christianity went wrong some time ago. You'll never find one place in the Bible where the New Testament Christians tried to impose the rules or the commandments of Christianity on a lost person. They started with the gospel. And once that person was genuinely saved, Christ was sitting on the throne of that person's life. Now let's get back. Let, now let's get to the, to the word of God. Now let's look into that which is holy. Remember what Jesus said, don't cast that which is holy before the dogs. Don't cast your pearl before swine. So I'm not talking to lost people. I'm talking to saved people tonight. That your outward fight includes your appearance. And the Bible is very clear that God has a different standard than the world. The second thing, second sub-point under that first point, is that we find in the Scripture God has established clear boundaries for nakedness. He has established clear boundaries for nakedness. You say, what do you mean? All right, if I had a little puppy dog, and I do, his name's Raleigh, and he's cute, and he's, uh, he's wild, and I believe if we were to just let him run out the front door, he would be a pancake in the road within seconds. That's how wild he is. So if I were going to let him out the front door, here's what I would do. I would go out the front door, and I would establish boundaries. I would put up some kind of fence. I would put up an electric fence. I would show him the boundaries so that he would not go past that. And that, the reason why I would do that is to keep him safe. God does not establish boundaries with us to, to necessarily hurt us. He does it to keep us safe. Why? Because God is holy and God is light and in him is no darkness. And that means if I live in open sin, I can't have the presence of God in my life. And so for our benefit, he sets boundaries up so that we'll know what's right and what's wrong. And we've all done the same for children. And uh, if you don't have children, you'll have them eventually, uh, maybe. And uh, I'm sure you'll do the same for them. Go with me over to Exodus chapter 28. So there are boundaries that are set in the scriptures, and God has defined what nakedness is. And so now we understand from Genesis 3 that there's a difference. God has a different standard than the world. And they went from fig leaves to cover the privates to full coats to cover from the neck down to the knee. And then you find in Exodus chapter 28 something that kind of gives, gives even credit to what God had done in Genesis chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 28, God is, um, God is defining or describing the priestly clothing that will be worn in order for the priest to come into the presence of God. Now some of this stuff uh, may escape you. So in the Old Testament, prior to Christ, if someone came into the presence of God with sin, that person would die almost immediately. In the tabernacle, there was the holiest of holies, 
And one priest was allowed to go in there. The high priest was allowed to go in that place once a year. And they would tie a rope to his ankle, and they kept bells on the bottom of his garment. And that was so that if he went into the holiest of holies with sin at all that had not been covered by the blood of an animal, and then God's presence showed up, if he, he would die immediately because sin can't be in the presence of God, they could then take the rope and pull him back out from underneath the curtain, and then they move on to the next high priest. So we know that sin cannot be in the presence of God. So as God was defining these priestly garbs, he's trying to help them to know how can they approach him. And if you look with me at verse 42, there's one piece of garment here that he talks about. And it says, and thou shalt make them linen breeches. Most of y'all know what breeches are, right? Anybody use that word? My mother-in-law likes to use that word all the time. I call them pants. She calls them breeches. Who's a breeches? Land in your breeches? Breeches? Breeches landing. That's what we're going to call him from now on. Breeches landing. So uh, it says, thou shalt make them linen breeches. All right, they're going to make some pants. Why? To cover their nakedness. Well, that makes sense. But look at this. From the loins, even unto the thighs, they shall reach. He, he is describing the area of nakedness. Now, in our minds, we might think loin being the private area, but if you look at the word, and you can go look this up on your own, loins to the, to the Hebrews, as God gave it to them, was referring to this area. And here's how we know that. It was all the way from the knee up to this area. It's because the prophets like Elijah and John the Baptist would wear a girdle that would cover their loins. And you can find Old uh, Testament references online where the girdle covers the torso. So again, that, that just gives more credit to what God did in Genesis chapter 3. The coats, neck down to the knee, there's an area that God has established in the Bible that is in fact nakedness. That's what he calls it. So if you're going to fight the good fight, you have to understand that God is concerned about our appearance, and these are the parameters that he sets forth in the Word of God. These are the boundaries. And if you honor those boundaries, you avoid being guilty of sinning against God as time goes on. These boundaries identified to those who would be in the presence of God, and because of that, they needed to honor God with their, bo their bodies. Now turn with me over to First. Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because you might be saying, well, I'm not a priest, and um, we're not in the Old Testament, Brother Tim. I don't know what you're talking about. You're using too much of the Old Testament. I understand what you're saying. But once we entered into the family of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that we are all a part of the priesthood of the believer. Therefore, we are just as responsible with what we do with these bodies of ours, if not more so than the priest of the Old Testament. And the Bible clearly states that our bodies have become the temple of the living God. The temple. Our body is the temple of the living God. Speedo man that I was talking about earlier, he was concerned about the building, right? He wouldn't come here dressed in a Speedo. He'd put a suit on or maybe, maybe not a suit, but at least T-shirt and shorts, okay? But he misunderstood something. The building is not the temple of God. The believer is the temple of God. And therefore, we are accountable based on what we do in this temple, with this temple. And that's, the, that's part of that fight again, the outward fight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse, verse um, I'm in the wrong chapter there. There we go. Uh, verse 20, 
It's well, actually, look at verse 19. This will just be what I uh, reference of what I just mentioned. It says, "What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own?" Now, again, verse 19 is for the believer. He's not talking to the lost person out here, the the atheist, the agnostic, you know, someone who's worshiping another god. He is talking directly to those who have been purchased from a devil's hell by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? You don't own yourself anymore. For you are bought with a price. The price was the precious blood of the eternal Son of God. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. My body should glorify God Almighty just as much as my spirit should. Now, if you remember when I first started the message, I was asking questions, and some people have asked the question, does it matter how I look? Does it matter what, what a believer looks like? And according to the Bible, it does, because in our bodies we glorify God, and in our spirits we glorify God. The body is the outward, the spirit is the inward. That means inward and outward, I'm to glorify my God. How do I glorify God? I keep his word. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If I'm going to glorify God, I will keep his word. And what does his word say about nakedness? He has established the boundaries of nakedness. Did you know before the 1930s, it was illegal for men to go shirtless in public? Did anybody know this? Yeah. It wasn't until after the 1930s. That's not even that long ago for men to go around shirtless. Because now the question is, if a man can be shirtless, why can't a woman be shirtless? And really, why can't a woman be shirtless? If anything, what she has is, is doing something more natural than what a man has, so why couldn't she be shirtless? And so you've got movements where women are starting to feed out in public, and there's no shame about it. It's just wide open and exposed. But if we were to acknowledge what God said early on, he's placing coats to cover the bodies of men and women. Not just women. See, we get too caught up on women. Women, you got to wear the long dress. You got to wear the high neck and this and that. And then men are out here shirtless and exposing their bodies, but yet God established the same standard for both of them. Why? It's because of the fact that the nature of man is geared towards sin. And in our heart is lust. And what do we lust after? We lust after flesh. And there are certain parts of the body that individuals will lust after. Whether it's a great lust or whether it's a small lust, when the nakedness is exposed, they begin to desire. There's thoughts, there's feelings. And I don't think I need to get a uh, dry erase board up here and draw you pictures. I believe we all understand what I'm talking about. We should not, we should never tempt others into sin. I agree with some who would say this, that other people need to learn how to control their sin. I think there was a few generations where uh, perverted men never got a handle on their perversions, and they expected all the women to wear sackcloths to the point where their perversion would never be stimulated. No, I think it swings both ways. I believe the pendulum swings both ways. The man needs to get a hold of his perversion to lust after a woman in the way that he does, as well as women... Uh, need to be more careful about what they're exposing. But then that flips the other way. Men need to be careful about what they're exposing. Because I'll tell you this, there are women that will lust after men just as much as there are men 
who lust after women. And now we all know there are men that are lusting after men and there are women that are lusting after women. So you don't know who is giving googly eyes at you whenever you expose things. Okay? The thing is we live in a fallen world. And people are always looking. And a child of God, out of everybody in the world, a child of God should never be guilty of putting something forth that would cause another to be tempted to lust and to sin against God. If anything, we should rep represent Jesus Christ in such a holy manner that when others look at us, they don't think about flesh in that way, sexual things, but they think there's something different about that person. That person does not look like everybody else that I see. There's something unique about them. And maybe as they keep digging and prying, they'll find out it's because of Jesus Christ being in your life. Just something to think about. The third sub-point under this first point, this is going to be a two-part message, so don't worry, I won't keep you here all night. Third sub-point under this first point is this. A Christian should dress with modesty in mind. Go with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. A Christian should dress with modesty in mind at all times. At all times. Uh, dress is not relative. I had seen something one time where some, some lady was trying to, trying to suggest that your clothing that you wear is relative, meaning that it only matters based on where you are. So if you're in church, you dress you know, more appropriately. You wear some longer things. If you're out on the beach, you get a little more skimpy. You, know, you get a little looser because you've got to get the tan, right? Isn't that, what, isn't that what really matters in eternity, the tan? Everybody's got to get the tan. Isn't that how we think, though? But if you think about it, okay, let's just move the, remove the blinders for a little bit. What are you wearing on the beach? You're wearing your underwear. Isn't that most, and I'm not trying to be crude, but most men wear boxers, okay? And then most ladies would wear a top and a bottom. What do you find on the beach? What do you find at the swimming pool? You're wearing your underwear. And don't let the blinders of the world confuse you and cause you to think differently Recognize what God has said. He set a standard in Genesis chapter 3 about where nakedness is and Exodus chapter 28. He defined it. He's put up the boundaries. Now you have to make the decision yourself, as I did many years ago because I wasn't raised in a home like this, and my wife had to make the decision. She wasn't raised in a home like this. Who do you serve? Who do you serve? Who sits on the throne of your life? And if it's the world, then go on. Keep, keep doing it exactly like you're doing it. And let the world be your God. But if it's Jesus Christ, and it's our Creator, don't deceive yourself tonight. He's given us instruction in His Word, and it's very plain. And He's defined the areas, and if you want to honor Him, that's how you honor Him. Recognizing what He said in His Word. First Timothy chapter 2, look at verses 9 and 10. Now these passages are to women, but I don't want to focus just on women. I want men to understand this is also... For them as well, okay? So look at these two passages, verses 9 through 10, chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. And we'll stop right there. The third sub-point of this appearance when it comes to this outward fight is that a Christian should dress with modesty in mind. 
The word here where it says adorn themselves in modest apparel, the word modest doesn't mean like we would think of it today. We think modesty is always long dresses, high necks, um, you know, full covering, all that sort of stuff. The word actually has to do more with being well arranged. Well arranged. Things are well arranged. Um, they're, they're arranged in such a way that your appearance, your appearance is in fact modest. It's balanced. You ever met somebody before? You ever been out in public and somebody, uh, something the person was wearing drew your attention, drew your eyes right to that place. There was one thing on their body that just, oh, there it is. You know, just hit you like a ton of bricks. That's not modesty. See, biblical modesty has to do with being well arranged in such a way where the body is balanced so that no part of the body has any immediate attention drawn to it. And some people will dress in such a way where they might expose some part of their body and suddenly that's where every, all the attention is. Or if you wear something very flashy, you know, even, and I'm not saying this is sin, but let's say that I had big, thick, bright red glasses on up here, okay? And I had my hair dyed, I don't know, super, super intense blonde and it was spiked up. Where would your eyes go? Right here, right? Attention, draw, right here. I believe even that wouldn't be ungodly. You know why? Because the Bible says we should be modest, well-arranged, balanced, moderate in our appearance. And the whole reason is, is because we're not to be overly flashy, drawing attention to ourselves. We're to be drawing attention to Christ. We're to to turn eyes not on us, but onto Jesus Christ so that others might see him, be saved, and then they will be eternally secure. So again, in our passage, if you will, look at verse 9 one more time. In like manner also. Now, I know it says that women, but I want you to know the principles are the same for men and women, so men, don't, don't turn me off, all right? In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. This is referring to an appearance which stems from good behavior, well arranged, not drawing attention to any one particular part of the body. That's being modest. That's being well arranged, being balanced in your appearance. And then it goes on and tells us what to put on. You ready for this? What to put on? Look, it says uh, put on the, we've got modest apparel. That's, that's uh, something we've already talked about. But then it goes on, it says, with shamefacedness and sobriety. Shamefacedness is not a word we use often today. But it has this idea of someone who has a, a sense of shame. There's a little humility in them. They have some regard for others. Not shame as in I feel guilty, but shame as in I don't feel so prideful about myself that I'm going to let all of my muscles rip through my shirt right now so everybody knows I've been doing my sit-ups and I've been doing my, uh, my bench pressing, you know, that sort of thing. It has this idea of being shamefaced enough to wear, again, it's humble apparel. It doesn't draw any attention to any particular part of my body. They're just clothes. Ultimately, I want to glorify Christ above all things. And then sobriety has to do with self-control, that I understand that I can control myself enough in my clothing that I'm not going to be boastful or prideful in what I wear. See, Christians should dress in this sort of way, with, with moderate dress, balanced. Now, what to, what to not put on in these passages? Look what it says. It says, not broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, 
And I think most of this is understandable. It doesn't mean a lady can't braid her hair. It doesn't mean a lady or a man can't wear gold or silver. It doesn't mean that. But it's referring to those who become somewhat flamboyant about it. It's over the top. It's, uh, there was a movement, and I don't know if it's as big now. It seemed like just about a year or so ago. You would look on social media, and I felt like every, everybody was getting into makeup. I mean, even guys were getting into makeup. And they would get into makeup in such a way where they would put a different face on their face. I, I, it's amazing. You'd start with the person, and you'd say, okay, you, you look kind of normal, you know, I guess. And then they put the makeup on, it's like, what happened? Did I switch channels? Something changed. It's not even the same person anymore. See, they were, they, they were taking it too far. I believe that would also be unbiblical because God made us the way we are. There's no need to paint ourselves up in such a way where we mask everything. My wife wears makeup, but I'll tell you what, when she washes her makeup off, she looks the exact same. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Sorry, that sounds bad, doesn't it? I'm saying it's the same face. But in some cases, people will wash the makeup off and suddenly it's a totally different person. Be comfortable in your skin. No, God made you the way he did because he loves you just like you are. And a little bit of makeup and a little bit of moderation, there's nothing wrong with that. A little bit of jewelry, nothing wrong with that. But when you make it over the top and it becomes uh, so much that it takes away from God's creation and it pulls people's attention to all these things on you as opposed to just acknowledging a godly person standing in front of them, I believe we're heading down a path of sin when we do that. A child of God should not be too flashy we should be humble in our dress, modest in mind, so that others might see Christ in us. Here was something one man said. I thought it was good. How you dress reflects your heart. If a man dresses in casual manner, it says something about his attitude. Likewise, if a woman dresses in an immodest manner, it says something about her heart. So dress does say something about her heart. I don't think it's just kids finding themselves when they suddenly come out of, the, out of the room and they're covered from head to toe in, in black this and black that and black eyeliner and piercings out the nose and the eyebrow and the ears and the lip and the tongue and the nails are black. Hey, there's something going on in that kid's life. Something's pulling them down a very dark path. It's a scary place. And they're showing us on the outside simply through their appearance, and often we overlook it, or we snarl our nose at them and go the other direction. We shouldn't do that either. Dress often says a lot about what's going on on the inside. When it comes to clothing, best thing to do, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Well-arranged, modest. Consider your attitude. And What does your clothing say about your attitude about? about God. When you come to church, what does your clothing say about your attitude about your Creator? When you're out in public, what does your clothing say about your attitude? I remember when I was in school, when I was in Bible college, I've been in school a few times, but when I was in Bible college, uh, and, I, and I certainly went in for full-time ministry, but I remember there was one teacher there, older man, uh, I respect him a lot. He said, fellas, and he didn't say much more than this, he said, if you're going to be a preacher, dress like a preacher. And you know, that's all he had to say, really. I'd already established some standards prior to Bible college myself, but when he said that, I understood something. And in this case, we don't have any preachers here, but we've got Christians. Hey, if you're going to be a Christian, dress like a Christian. It's that simple. 
Keep it simple, well-arranged, modest. Consider others and ultimately consider God's glory through your appearance. How are you glorifying God with what you're wearing? As becoming those who profess godliness and even God. You notice how in verse 10, what does it say? But which becometh women professing godliness. God, I love you. God, I'm thankful for you. I am a born-again believer with good works. And all of that, all of that um, seems to be identified or represented through one's outward appearance. And I believe I'm going to stop there. I've got three more things I want to talk to you when it uh, comes to this outward fight. But I think that's a lot to chew on. And, uh, you know, if you're a child of God, I can't say it any simpler than this, then look like a child of God. What does that mean exactly? If I'm a child of God, look like a child of God. Hey, are you happy to be alive? Then take care of yourself. God gave you that body that you've got. Take care of it. Guard it. Glorify God through it. Recognize what he said in his word about the boundaries of nakedness and honor and glorify him through your outward appearance. And you'll be well on your way to fighting a good fight, even outwardly. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer tonight. Father, we thank you for our time together in the service tonight. And Lord, I sure pray that, Lord, I just pray that I honored and glorified you through the message tonight. And I pray that you'd help me to, uh, as we continue this study here on this concerning this fight, Lord, in, in the lives we're living as Christians, that, uh, Lord, I just pray that you'd help us. Give us some understanding. Uh, Lord, s stir something up in each one of us to want to go out and, and study this out for ourselves according to the Word of God. And, Lord, I pray all of us would be able to say, let God be true, but every man a liar, and that we would decide today whom it is we're going to serve. I think about how Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, We'll serve the Lord. And Father, I believe all of us have to come to that crossroads and make that decision. And I pray tonight, Lord, that each one of us would be willing to let you be the Lord over our lives. Thank you so much, Lord, for the day you've given us. I pray you'd be with those who couldn't be with us tonight. And I pray you'd bless each one that's here tonight. May your will continue to be done. And may you help this ministry to continue to grow and to be everything you want it to be. In Jesus' name.